0: It's Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, all right, let's go back
1: to the phones. And joining us, one of our favorite contributors, he's Mr. Knowledgeable on everything outdoors, Nate Zelinski. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. Did you get to hear a little bit of what I was talking about at the end
2: of the hour there? I heard one that nobody catches fish every time they're out, and I was going to make a comment, and then I decided I probably shouldn't, and then I had a great intro, so I I have a lot of things going through my head.
1: (laughs) Well, the one thing, though, and I know we're going to talk some hunting and and some fishing, but people struggle fishing a lot of times because they try to force maybe what they were doing in early June and try to make that work and... August and it may not work because the fish and the bait and everything or maybe just those fish aren't as active and you need to go chase another species or another lake and I think too often they give in to just the fish not biting and not making the effort to improve their
2: their outcomes I could not agree more, you know, and I hear that all the time that the fish, you know, have slowed down their eating or, or this or that. But let's face it, water's warm, metabolism screaming. Those fish are eating more now than they do probably at any other time of the year. So, number one, they're eating. Let's just face it, they don't eat. They don't look like they do this time of year. And uh, if you're catching any fish, I think everybody can agree. They're looking pretty dang good this time of year. So, the fish are eating, you just have to adapt. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. And I, I think it's two parts. I think it's one, the confidence, you know, we've been doing one technique from, you know, May, June, July. And now all of a sudden we're, you're here in August approaching September and people don't want to change because that technique has been working. So they just keep having confidence that they will find some fish in that scenario that will take that technique. So that confidence in the, the previous technique, I think really kind of, kind of you know hurts the, the average angler when they're out there. And then number two, getting out of your comfort zone. I think we all do this, right? We all have that, that confidence bait and it's hard for us to get out of that and try something new. We, you know, we're, we're not a a crankbait fisherman, So we finally do, we put one bait on, we pull it in one level at one speed. We don't have immediate results. so We fall back on what we have confidence in, but you have to to adapt to these fish When, when they move, That new pattern's there, and you have to get on it. It's one of those things I look at as a learning curve. You know, spend a day or two, spend several hours working on it, just knowing that it's an investment. Because once you figure it out, once you build the pattern, you're going to have more success every time you go out, and then you'll have that kind of, you know, in your tool belt for the future. So I I think it's a big thing for anglers to get out there, try new things uh, until they develop those patterns. Because I I keep hearing it right now, you know, especially on the walleye fishing, on some of the pike fishing. Uh, But it's one of those things that once, you build that pattern you're going to have some great success out there
1: now i know we want to talk quite a bit of hunting today but as long as we're on this what are your tactics right now for the walleye
2: you know so right now terry we we have you know unbelievably high amount of shad at all of our fisheries so at your Pueblo, at your chatfield at your cherry creek at bar at boyd so the whole front range has literally exploded with shad that shad is in the top call it top 10 feet of the water column so when we have been fishing structure, you know, roadbeds, humps, points, that road or that structure was deep enough, the shad were deep enough to where the interaction between predator prey was a good resource. The the, the walleye would sit on, on structure, the shad would bump up against that structure, it would funnel them to the walleye, the walleye would feed, you could pull your bait on that structure, catch fish. Now that the shad is up in the water column, so the shad are suspended, they're up high in the water column, all the walleyes have left that structure and are swimming around under those bait pods so if you can find some really shallow structure let's just say you have a an underwater hump that's four or five feet deep there's probably walleyes on that because it's shallow enough to where the shatter over them and you have the opportunity to throw blade bait throw jigging wraps throw those type techniques but in general if you want to have success every time you go out by far, our best technique now is pulling small crankbaits high in the water column. So if I were going to Cherry Creek or Chatfield today, I would take like a small size 5 flicker Shad, So I want a bait that's a little shorter in profile, a little thicker up and down, lots of tail wobble. Uh, The jointed shad wraps right now with extreme action are very good. So my go-to would be like a size 5 flicker shad jointed bait. I'm going to fish that on a monofilament line. I'm going to have it on my trolling rod with my line counter. I'm going to let that bait literally anywhere from 15, 20 feet out to about 60 feet out. Lately, 45 feet back has been my sweet spot. So putting that bait down, you know, four to six feet below the surface, uh, I am putting it on a planer board, but I'm not laying my planer boards out very far. I, I had this discussion with an angler this week, and he goes, come on, it's, it's summer out there. There's wakeboard boats and, you know, paddle boats. How are you pulling planer boards? In spring, we put our planer boards way out. This time of year, I'm literally kicking my planer boards out 15, 20 feet to the side of my boat, just enough to get them away from my motor uh, to not spook as many fish. So small crankbaits, high in the water column, just a little bit, you know, out from the side of the boat, and that's how I'm catching by far a lot of fish, big fish, and most importantly, consistent fish every time we get out there. So that's my go-to, Chatfield Cherry Creek. It's working. It's going to work well into the fall. Uh, and it's a technique I would definitely encourage anglers to go out there and try. You know,
1: it's also a technique that you don't need to buy lead core line. You don't need a lot of snap weights or anything like that because these baits, you're fishing them shallow enough where they'll dive to that. So if you have a good line counter reel or a good way to at least know how much line you've That's got out, right. yep. mark the line, find a way to repeat once you start catching fish,
2: um, you can do that as long as you can control your speed. That's 100%. And the nice thing, Kerry, is these two parts. Speed, we're on the upper end. So, you know, we're going anywhere from 1.9, call it, to like 2.2, 2.3. 2. So certain times of the year, you have to be flawless to a tenth of a mile an hour. This time of year, as long as you're kind of hovering around that two miles an hour, you're going to catch fish. And honestly, Kerry, when we're on a roadbed, we're on a point, So much of my success is boat control. You know, that roadbed is 22 foot wide. You're both eight feet wide. You have seven foot rods out each side. There's not a lot of leeway for any sort of failure or bad driving. Um, So, so much of the year, we have to be so flawless with our boat control to get our technique where the fish are. It's hard. It's almost stressful. This time of year, those fish are randomly positioned everywhere. So this is a fun technique because get your bait to the right depth you know put those plane boards out this little side or have an extra long rod to get to the side of the boat however you do it get the bait a little ways away from the boat but now honestly you can relax and then kind of enjoy the day because you're not as specific on your spot you know i'm definitely paying attention i'm looking at the graph as i catch fish i definitely swing around and go back through there but in general uh, i would say it's a very fun low stress technique to catch some fish
1: i like better when it's you have to be precise because then I like to keep your rod off the spot and my rod on the spot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Any other fishing yeah. before we move on to hunting? You, you know, the the pike bite is going strong. The water temperatures are dropping in the mountain. The fish are very well fed. I would say that that is another very specific technique. So uh, now that, that water temperature is falling, we are seeing more increased activity on the topwater bite. Uh so we're getting a lot of topwater fish, getting some good spinnerbait fish and getting some jerkbait fish. The biggest thing as these fish as the water temperature falls and the fish have increased their feed, they are getting full. So even though they're feeding more regular, I would say that the fish are not moving as far to take a bait. So the biggest thing with pike, I think a lot of anglers will burn a bait above the weeds or they'll fish, you know, quite a ways away from a weed wall. If you are not right on the fish, they are not going to exert the energy to come chase your bait down. So when we're fishing and I cast out, let's just say I'm over a big weed mat at Spinier 11 mile. You know, if my shadow zone where we can't see where kind of the darker water starts, is six feet down your bait has to be there or lower um again we're just not seeing the fish exert a ton of energy to come to us so my big tip for pike cater to that go to the fish present your bait to the fish uh the odds of them taking it are through the roof but again if you make them work too far or expect them to swim too far it's just not going to happen this time of year all right my
1: friend what's going on with hunting
2: I tell you, Terry, we are excited. Uh, again, we're a hundred percent hard horned on all of our bull elk. So, I mean, literally all the branch antler bulls. So, every two and a half year old and bigger, uh, you know, they are pretty much velvet off. Uh, we are starting to hear some bugling. We're starting to see the the bulls get near the cows. Uh, again, by no means are we saying it's a full rut. Uh, or even signs of rub, but there's definitely the the signs that the season is approaching uh, on elk here in Colorado. So the biggest thing I would say is up until even last week, we were still scouting. We were still doing a lot of research, but we're at the point now to where if you're not finding elk, something is wrong. So you need to adapt. There are certain times a year and, you know, early mid August where maybe your cows were in one place, maybe your bulls were in another and you're kind of hoping that they're going to show up to each other or find the middle ground where the cows and bulls come together to kind of, you know, start the, the gathering of harems by right now, you need to be seeing elk. So if you're not seeing elk, you are in a, a very fast grasp to change that. We are one week from the start of the season, uh, and our elk are in their developed patterns. So where they're at now, what their behavior is now, is how it is going to be on the start of that season. So the biggest thing is we are now in full you know force uh, to find the animals, stay with the animals, build the patterns. We are now very much uh, locked into their patterns. So where the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of watching their patterns. Now we are glued to it. We're watching timing. What time do they go to bed? What time do they get out of bed? How much time are they spending on your feet? You're evaluating how much time you have to hunt. That's probably one of the biggest things. You know, so many hunters will scout, and the animals will only be out feeding for the first hour of light, then they retreat to their bedding ground. And hunters yet want to walk around and spend all day pushing the animals, spreading scent. Right now, we're watching these animals building those patterns, and that's exactly how we're going to hunt them next weekend. We're going to hunt their pattern. We're going to hunt the timing that they're on their feet and active. Uh, we're going to be, you know, super conservative on not blowing these animals out, and those are going to be the things that are going to lead us to a more successful hunt this coming fall.
1: Do you think as we go, as we transition from archery and then start including muzzle loader? that we're going to see a really good early season for calling or a semi-rut or in the rut for the
2: muzzleloader hunters? You know, we're definitely seeing cooler temperatures up there, which I love to see. Uh, We do have a lot of green grass. And, you know, generally speaking, when we look kind of at the overall environment up there, so many times that we have a lot of grass, a lot of greenery, that tends to lead to a later rut. The moon phases lead to an earlier rut this year. So we we have a lot of different things going on. Um, you know, the health of the animals with the hydration is just incredible. Uh, but again, I, I think we're going to kind of see both. I can tell you that so far, um, I am definitely hearing more bugling and seeing more signs of rut, um than I did last year at this time. So if you just said this year to last year, I would say so far the activity is leading to an earlier rut. Uh, but really, I would say by next week's show, uh, I'll even have a better idea of that bill you know, to lend everybody a little more advice on uh, what we think those students are going to, you know, unfold as we approach a month loader.
1: Do you, when you you try to determine what the animals are doing? Obviously you do, but do you, when it comes to calling, I think most people call more than they should, not less than they should. Do you let the animals tell
2: you by how vocal they are? 100%. I think that literally if I would say in general, the state of Colorado, I would say we bugle 99 too much times. You know, we cow call 80% too much. Um, we definitely overcall, and we tend to shut our animals down before the rut even starts. So my rule um, are two parts. Number one, just general rule to follow, if they're not talking, you shouldn't be talking. So if you don't naturally hear animals communicating, cow calling, bugling, more than likely you should not. Give it time. If you ruin it, educate them on your calls, you're not going to have that experience. If you take your time, play it cool, just try to spot and stalk, sit on water, wait until the rut activity starts for the individual animals, and then once it starts for them, they'll naturally start talking, and then you can start talking and your success rate will go through the roof. So number one, if they're not talking, you shouldn't be talking. If you can't handle that, right, because I'm saying this, and I know nobody's going to listen to me. So if you are that person that has to call, right, you're, you're twitching, you're itching, you have to blow in your bugle tube, my general rule is don't do it when it's daylight. So if I want to start seeing if there's animals talking, if I want to call the animals to try to locate them, I will do it from – 2 3 a.m. until first light. Once it gets light, I will not call again. Whatever it is, when the animals and it's pitch black, they're more likely to call back and or not feel the pressure from you as a hunter calling to them. So those are my two rules. Number one, if they're not talking, I'm not talking. If I can't handle it and I have to try to locate them, I always do so in the dark. Once it gets light, I am not, no longer calling if I'm not hearing them naturally calling uh, in, in just again their everyday pattern. So those are the two things that I follow, and I promise you that will change your style and drastically increase your success.
1: You know, I, been, my, all my years evolved in hunting, call I've never been a great caller and I always felt that calling is an integral part of hunting and some types of hunting and it's a great way to interact and it makes you feel good but it's not necessarily the best way to harvest animals most of the time. And I'm I glad you put think that it, out it ruins more that. hunts
2: than anything. <laughs> no, I
1: cannot. I'm gonna let you go here in a second, but you got a lot to decide on coming up. You know, you've got incredible fishing you're out there scouting, and archery season starts within days, then muzzle loader comes up, and you've got a couple of young ones that are going to go on their
2: first hunt. How are you going to handle all this? I'll tell you what, Terry, I, I'm out all week scouting. I actually saw bears this morning. I have a bear tag starting next weekend. Um, I am you know, out in the field watching the elk and deer. Uh, you know, Pronghorn's currently going, um, so it's got a lot going on. So I'm going to fish a couple days this week. I'm going to have my kids out for doves on Friday. Uh, I'll be out watching some bears and keeping up on the elk and deer on Saturday. Uh, so there is so much to go. And then I tell you, I'm down here at Bass Pro Shops at the Denver store today. I have a seminar on elk. Elk hunting with a rifle at 11 a.m., and then I have an archery seminar at 1 p.m. So if you're watching the show, you're getting excited talking about elk, Come on down here to Bass Pro, Denver. Uh, again, rifle hunting elk at 11, uh, archery hunting at 1 p.m. Uh, I'm here to hang out. I know I have a lot of people so far that have been asking me about muzzleloader equipment. What powder? What bullet? What should I do? How do I hone in my muzzleloading skills? Uh, we'll be down here. We can talk about that. So a lot of stuff happening. Uh, and you can always follow my Instagram page. That's more my personal page, Nate Z, or Nate Zielinski, I should say. And uh, we'll walk you through everything we're doing this week. And, yeah, a lot of stuff happening. You know, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of doves. Do you agree? Uh, There's a lot of doves. So far, uh, I'm definitely seeing a lot. Now, it never seems to fail. My luck is uh, sometime this week they tend to fail. They get a cold front, kind of like we're having today. But uh, I'm crossing my fingers since my kids are going out uh, that the dove uh, season continues as is, and we have a lot of birds to to play with. Uh, I think everybody knows we need a lot of birds with our odds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There there doesn't seem to be a cold front coming. So I will let you go, and you can go watch the weather. That'll work. We'll talk to you soon. (laughs) All right. Nate Zielinski, always a great resource. We're gonna take a quick time out. When we come back, the folks from Jack's Outdoor Gear are gonna join us and we're gonna talk about the availability of what you need for the start of these hunting seasons and maybe throw in a tip or two along the way. On Terry Wicks Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. <laughs> You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, <clears throat> presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go to the phones now, and joining us from Jack's East Store in Loveland is Bill Bergland. Good morning, Bill. morning, Terry. How's it going? You know, it's going well, and I don't know if you caught the end of that. We were talking a little hunting with Nate, and I think a lot of people got caught off guard that we're so close to hunting season because we had such a cool, damp, for a summer that all of a sudden it got warm, people aren't thinking fall yet. I think a lot of people are behind the curve getting ready for hunting. Bill,
3: hey, you're right there. It was sure a short summer, seems like. <laughs> yeah, so
1: we got dove season right around the corner. I want to start there. If all I, to me, dove season, if you're a beginning shotgunner or just somebody who wants to tune up for the upland game or waterfall seasons, dove season is a great opportunity. So if I come in and to ask you, I say, well, I want to start dove hunting, or my son wants to start dove hunting. What questions do you need to ask me, and can you get me outfitted?
3: Well, first thing I want to know is what you've got to shoot with and where you're going to be shooting at. I've, I've got youth shotguns and 20-gauge starting at 435 bucks and going up. I've got adult shotguns and 12-gauge starting at 375 on up. Plenty of shells and stuff, but you know, where what are you hunting with? Where are you hunting? What experience do you have? Exactly, and I'm so glad. You know, a
1: couple of years ago, you couldn't get ammunition or guns, and and now there seems you seem to have a pretty good inventory, so you can really take care of me, right?
3: We're well stocked this year. I've got plenty of lead loads for dove and pretty much all small game lead loads. Uh, starting to get in a lot of steel stuff for waterfowl. So I think we're going to be in really good shape ammo and firearm-wise this year. What what which of the, what the load
1: do you recommend for doves? Now, you, you mentioned you have 20-gauge for beginners. I think the 20-gauge is an incredible shotgun for the beginner. And a gun you don't really outgrow. It's light. It has lower recoil. And you can use it for things like doves, and even for upland game for your— really for your entire life if you want to. And, of course, the 12-gauge is an all-around good gun. But let's go to the loads. you pretty much use the same shot size in both the 20 and the 12s
3: for doves? I do. Um, I use my standard trap loads. So anywhere from a 7.5 to a number 8, totally light. Just go out and enjoy the shooting. Don't get beat up with it. I, I couldn't agree
1: more. And, you know, a trap load, uh, it's really interesting because the body of a dove is really about the same size as a clay pigeon.
3: It really is. It doesn't fly as nice as a clay pigeon does, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I could. Yeah, I can hit the clay pigeon. I can't hit the dove. I have. <laughs> I have a cartoon. I have a cartoon that I put on my Facebook page every year. Two doves are sitting on a fence, and they're looking. And it's supposed to be about me. And they say, "Is that the same guy that was here last year?" And he goes, "Yeah, we're good." <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I've seen that one. Yeah, but the doves are, you know, they're good table fare. Uh, You can hunt them without a lot of walking so that you can start somebody out, or even if you don't want to do a lot of walking, they're pretty easy. You can actually almost sit on a chair or a bucket if you have a good spot, and they'll keep coming in. It's just a
3: great way to get into shotgun shooting, isn't it? It's fantastic. If you can find a wheat field that didn't get completely cut yet or a bunch of sunflowers or milo, like you say, just sit, sit in the shade and wait for them to come by to you.
1: It really is. Now, another season that's going to be on us really quick is muzzleloader. Now, that gets a little more complicated. Um, a lot of people are going to muzzleloader. They they want to do a more primitive type of hunting or they want to get out into the field earlier and they're not maybe ready to take on archery yet. Muzzleloader is a growing uh, sport. We really ran into some issues over the last few years about guys getting – the same type of loads to shoot their muzzle loader. And boy, you really need to practice the muzzle
3: loader with what you're going to hunt with, don't you? You really should. I mean, the, the difference in the different brands of bullets, the different weights of bullets, the different powders makes a dramatic difference on point of impact down there. So practice with what you're going to hunt with. We're pretty well stocked this year. I got a good selection of powders. I've got, uh, you know, the standard Pyrodex and 777. I've got some uh, blackhorn left. I've got a good selection of bullets. I've got the two hundred nine primers. I've got some guns starting from one ninety five going on up, so we can get you going. Is it is muzzle
1: loading a difficult? I you know I haven't muzzle loader muzzle loader hunted. I will admit that. Do, you, do, do people seem to find muzzle loading difficult to to get into, or do they catch on to it pretty quickly?
3: they catch on to it pretty quickly. The most difficult part is learning how to load your gun consistently. So you're always hitting that same point of impact, you know, getting your powder measured precisely, getting the same compression on there every time, but a few trips to the range, you can master that and get on out there.
1: Well, you know, one of our sponsors, and I know you guys shoot at sometimes too, and that's Colorado Clays, does have a muzzle loader friendly uh, in their shooting range, both at 50 and a hundred yards. Um, What kind of range? You know, Colorado's a little different. You have to be a little more primitive in Colorado than some other states. What kind of range do you think a, a good muzzleloader hunter is consistently shoot at?
3: When I go muzzleloader hunting, if I'm shooting at something deer sized I try to stay within 150 yards. Something else size, I try to get within 100 yards of them before I crack off at them, and I've had good success following that rule. And muzzle loader is
1: uh, it's unique is there any uh, you know it's just it's it's a primitive hunt it kind of puts you back in touch with nature. It's just a step above archery really and and you really can get into the calling when you're muzzle loading. How are you setting for calls?
3: We've got plenty we've got plenty of calls um none of us in the store are really good at using them, so <laughs> I'll point you to some online resources and some local callers to go get lessons from but uh, yeah, we're set. Yeah. So let's, how about before
1: we leave, what about, you know, the, the regular rifle and the waterfall and the Upland game, everything's going to be starting here pretty quick overall um, big game. And for, you said you got a good supply of shotguns. What about rifles
3: for uh big game? I've got plenty of rifles. I've got a lot of the new 6.5, whatever's or the whatever PRCs that people are craving right now. and pretty well equipped on ammo. So we can probably solve their needs.
1: Do you have a favorite caliber for big game?
3: I'm real partial to my two seventy and my thirty out six. They they work.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because you talked about like the Creedmoor's and all that that you mentioned that are coming out that everybody wants to go to. And I started my deer hunting with a single shot four ten with a slug. Then I graduated to a lever action thirty thirty, and eventually I had a three oh eight and a thirty out six. Um, but you know what? That 308, that thirty .30-06 served me well. There wasn't much of much animal in the North America that I couldn't hunt with those.
3: Well, they're very effective, and there's a variety of loads for them. And you pick up the ammo in every gas station in Wyoming, and yeah, you know, it's it's out there, and it's well proven and has lasted the ages.
1: Well, we're going to let you go, but I think the message is that. It's getting late. you got to get your stuff. you got to practice. you got to shoot with what... Get out to the range, shoot what you're going to hunt with. But it sounds like Jax is well set up to take care of you.
3: That we are. And get out to the range and have some fun. Take the family with you. All right, Bill.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invite. You bet. Bill Berglund from... He's from the Loveland East store of Jax. You know, they have two. One is where that... We used to be a Kmart. As you're heading out of town, this one is the one that's more towards where Sam's and that area is. Uh, those are both really big stores with just huge offerings. If you're an outdoor enthusiast of any kind, you need to stop by those stores and check them out. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, Chad LaChance is going to talk about fishing falling water because eventually the water starts to go down this time of the year in the Colorado Reservoirs. Hasn't been as much as lately, but one of his favorites has and he's going to tell us how he's approaching it on terry wickstrom outdoors on 104.3 the fan you're listening to terry wickstrom outdoors on 104.3 the fan let's go to the phones joining us one of our longest long contributors as far as he's been with the show for more years than almost anybody and one of our favorite contributors, Chad LeChance. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning from a chilly Horsetooth Reservoir
4: this morning.
1: Yeah, it's, it, uh, I noticed the temperature when I got up. My house was uh, in the high 50s, low 60s, not like it has been. And I think it's going to be a little nicer, but it, it it's going to warm up again. But, you know, and this cold coming through will, I think, actually help the fishing, but you want to talk about a subject in colorado most of the time we're starting out with our reservoirs full and fishing and then the water declines as we go through the year now this has been a different year with water coming and going and most of our reservoirs at really high levels but they're start the farmers are still pulling water and we're seeing some decline and you have to account for that when you're fishing don't you
4: Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it's a little bit later this year as far as them drawing, you know, the waters down, but I'm sitting here looking at horse tooth right now and it's probably lost twelve feet in the last uh two weeks. So it's losing a significant amount of water over the course of the day. It's noticeable. Uh, like as in, I put markers on the edge of the water and see what happens and it goes down four or five inches a day. So it's definitely losing a bunch of water. I've also been on Boyd Lake and Douglas in the last week, and both of them are also dropping. So it's definitely that time of year and it changes up a whole bunch of stuff And falling water. In my opinion, doesn't necessarily hurt the fish. Or fishing, I should say, but it can keep anglers honest for a couple, you know, a couple reasons. One, the immediate change from being high and stable to falling is a definite bummer. I mean, just to, for for lack of a better way to put it, when they when they officially open the floodgate and let the water out for the first time, that first say twelve to thirty six hour period will will shut fish down horribly. In my experience, in any reservoir we've ever seen that. Uh, and I ran into that at Boyd Lake last week when they opened the outlet. I got there the morning they opened the outlet, and fishing went from good to bad immediately. And uh, and so that that's the only time. The rest of the time the water actually falling is not a concern, and I'd actually fish, I'd rather fish low water than high water in most scenarios because it concentrates everything. But the big thing to keep in mind is that it, the falling water will keep fish adjacent to deeper water. That is not to say that they won't get into shallow water when the water is dropping, but they'll make forays into shallow water maybe to feed or maybe to what I call roost in the evenings when it comes to immature fish, getting up in shallow water to to sit for the evenings. But for the most part, um, they're going to want access to deep water all the time. So that can actually make things a little bit easier on an angler because it removes a lot of the big, broad, expansive, flat banks from the equation. So as far as your decisions go, so that's one thing. Another thing, it tends to have a, a, depending on how fast it's falling, uh, to make fish suspend, meaning that they're not on the top and they're not in the bottom. And that's the hardest fish to address, uh, in generally when I deal with what are suspended fish, I immediately think of trolling. Uh, these days I changed that up a little bit because we have forward facing sonar and forward facing sonar has changed the open water game. I'm learning very quickly, uh, about open water fishing. My learning curve has been accelerated tremendously and my neck's starting to get stiff from staring at that thing all the time now that the water's dropping, but it makes all the difference in the world. But when I say suspend, they might be in really deep water and up and up very high in the water column even. And that's just not a a realm that generally bass guys have dealt with. Walleye guys do to some degree when trolling, but it's not something we commonly see. Uh, but you've got to keep an open mind about what type of places you're going to find fish and the fact that they're going to move continuously with the water dropping. So as the water keeps working its way down, your fish will move. I do best if I am going to do a structure on offshore stuff, humps, ridges, channels, ledges, anything like that that's off the bank. Uh, and the ridges may be connected to the bank, like a long sloping ridge coming out, something like that but generally speaking it's going to have deep water all the way around it and or near it uh, and when i say deep water if i'm referencing say a place like horsetooth i say that water needs to be in the at least 20 to 40 foot range and here at Horse Tooth, part of the reason that is is because the smelts stay at 40 feet or below during the day uh for one and for two the shad high in the column will get up against the structure as the water's falling like this so it basically keeps you honest, but it makes you get out and stay around open water, deeper water and away from the flatter banks. The fish will still bite, but you just got to be very open-minded about where you find them.
1: You know, a couple points come to mind when you were saying all that. Uh, one is, uh, the forward facing sonar has taught us. We used to, I don't think we even knew if, if those fish were there though, especially bass suspended, And we certainly didn't know how to address them as far as fishing to them. We could do a little bit with diving crankbaits and we could do some other things, but we tended to fish, you know, in the in the cover or on the bank or on the structure and maybe two or three feet above because we knew where those fish were. Our traditional sonar would show us those fish. Now with the forward-facing sonar, those fish we know they're there we know how they're acting and we're starting to see developments and way to attack them oh a hundred
4: percent I'm working on some bait development right now stuff that I can't tell you about you'd have to have a non-disclosure agreement on uh, on file and I'm pretty sure our listeners don't but I'm working on some baits right now with company. That are, that are being designed specifically to address fish in open water uh, in casting applications. And I want to point out that two of the three biggest walleyes I caught last year, Now, again, this is last year, but I still caught two of them last year when the lake was dropping really quickly on surface baits in 100 feet of water. And that is not a realm I would have ever even been fishing, except for the fact that I could see them on the forward-facing sonar and they were cruising right down the middle of the lake, right directly under a foam line that the wind was blowing down the lake. So I would never even have tried to fish that before if I wasn't able to look at it and uh and see what's out there. And I saw fish. I assumed they were bass or wipers. Turns out they were big honking walleyes out there. So uh that's an interesting one. Another one right now that's that's interesting on that is the the uh, white bass and wall or uh, wipers, I should say. And both of those have been really interesting. I've been targeting those a little bit at Boyd and at Horsetooth. And in the open water scenarios, it's what the thing that amazes me is how fast they're going from the surface to the bottom and back. And you and I would have both told people depth range, depth range, depth range, but I'm watching walleye or excuse me, watching wipers cover 30 feet of water column in, in like five seconds and not think anything about it. So it's definitely opened some stuff up, but but it's made the falling water all that more, all that much more uh, accessible to anglers as far as catching goes. And I know a lot of people panic when they start seeing low water or falling water levels. But at the end of the day, I'd rather fish that. It's just that you have to stay on adjacent to deep water and around big pieces of defined structure in most cases to uh, to stay you know relevant to the fish. I I
1: couldn't agree more, and I think you know. I think we've always kind of understood that during falling water, the instincts of those fish were to have deep water nearby so they wouldn't get trapped in a small pond that would develop in a lake or something. So I think that's been a, a, an evolutionary development of the fish, and it's instinctive. The other thing, fishing these suspended fish, <clears throat> what I've gone to do a lot, and I want to get your opinion on this, is I'm throwing soft baits that are a little larger without as much weight so they stay in the water column and maybe in the strike
4: zone a little longer have you tried that I have done some of that and I've gone the other way around too, uh, along the same lines and throwing very small baits uh, that are very light and they sink very slow and I'm literally using the line to hold the bait up if that makes any sense so Um, One of the tricks I'm doing right now, and it's working for me very well, is throwing the little tiny Berkeley power switch they came out with. It's an inch and three quarters long and only weighs a sixteenth of an ounce. And that's a tiny, tiny little bait, but it's almost exactly the same size as the baby shad that the fish are feeding on in the open water, particularly at Boyd Lake. And so that bait sinks very slowly if you have it on a little bit of heavier braided line. You can't even cast it on heavy monofilament or fluorocarbon because it's only 16 to an ounce. But on braid, you can. And I'll make a long throw at it and the bait is not heavy enough to pull the braid down through the water column very quickly. And therefore it sinks really slow and stays high in the water column where those uh, white bass are feeding and allows me to work it almost horizontally even though it's a hybrid jig. So uh, along the same lines, basically using a little bit more of a neutrally buoyant situation just depending on how you get there. A large, uh, like a five inch soft jerk bait. On a very light jig head is another good call, or even a keel-weighted hook uh, is an excellent call as well. And those are along the lines where you're talking about, and again, it's all about the sink rate. But the, the suspended fish, you wouldn't know how much sink rate you needed if you couldn't see them on the forward-facing sonar, and that's, that makes a big difference. i probably use it more now in a falling water scenario than I did all of spring combined. Yeah, I
1: couldn't agree more. And the reason I stayed away from the little one is just getting the casting distance. But if you have a really light braid and a a good rod, you can get it out there. But you and I have talked before that um, seeing how these fish behave has changed our understanding of how spooky they can be.
4: Absolutely. And that's the other thing. And I'm going to throw this out there. The the, uh, junior, uh, excuse me, the High School Bassmaster State Championship is tomorrow here at Horsetooth. And I'm sure that's going to be one offshore, uh, you know, on humps and things like that. And one of the things I experienced this week repeatedly was fish getting out from under my boat. And, uh, and so you, you, you idle over them, they're fine. You look at them on the graph like, oh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them sitting around this ridge right here. It's exactly like I've just described on the radio. The ridge is, you know, 25 feet down to the top of it. Deep water all the way around it, you idle over it, they're fine. Big old stack of them looks like something out of the textbook. You drop the trolling motor, turn back around, trolling motor over to them, watch them on the forward-facing sonar as you get to them, and they disperse as soon as the boat gets over them. So I've learned to stay back off of them if I mark them. And I'm going back to even the old school of throwing a marker buoy on them that actually, you know, sitting on the surface of the water so that I can stay back away from the fish and throw at the buoy because spatial awareness in open water can be tricky. So I can throw at the buoy and then I know that my bait's dropping into where those fish were. But when I try to put the boat right on top of them, in a lot of cases they're either not biting or just flat leaving and they don't go far they just get out from under the boat even though it's 25 feet you know above them in the water much deeper than that it's not an issue but any shallower than that it's been it's been major and and it's very noticeable getting worse and worse as summer goes on i lamented that all morning yesterday on the lake where every time i'd find a group of fish they'd get out from under my boat
1: we are out of time my friend but great
4: information if people want to get a hold of you how do they do that uh, social media at Fishful Thinker, Facebook, Instagram, and especially the YouTube channel would be the best thing or at fishfulthinker.com. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Terry. You bet. Shot
1: a chance. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. I think if there's a message or a couple messages from today's show, one is hunting seasons are honest. I know summer seems short. We didn't get warm till late in the year. We're going to see more normal seasonal temperatures, and the seasons are starting. The animals are moving. If you're not ready, you need to get ready right now, and that includes your gear, your firearms, your archery equipment, and your scouting. Get out there and do it. The other one is fishing. Fishing changes as we go through the summer. A lot of you think, oh, they're not biting. You give up. Don't be afraid to change your tactics, change the species you're going after, and even change the lake. Uh, there's lots of great opportunities, lots of fish to be caught out there. Right now, is Dan Jacobs in the studio? No, I'm out fishing. Well, you should be in the studio. You're better at that. Yeah, sure. Well, well, maybe not. Let me think about that. But <laughs> I got a couple questions for you, okay? Yes, sir. Is there any reason we should look to take anything out of today's preseason game?
0: Oh, yes, coach. Of course, there's always uh, guys you know playing uh, either for the spots on the team or or they're uh, playing for uh, tape uh, for every other auditioning for every other team in the league. or w- what other cliches can I throw out there, coach? Yeah, right. I mean, the only reason I ask that
1: is my neighbor had the audacity to have his birthday party tonight. And I'm going to go to it because it's going to be free food and wine, so I'll go, and I'll tape the
0: game. But then I don't know if I'll even watch it after I tape it. Yeah, well, yeah, the bigger question is, uh, what are you bringing to the party, Terry? Nothing. Me. I bring me. You don't bring, like, some smoked salmon or a bottle of Chianti or, like, some Well, I do. A lot of times I do,
1: but not (laughs) this one is different, so, you know, he wants to supply it all.
0: You know what, Zach? Get, buys, Zach buys like that because he says he doesn't want to, you know, like us showing him up because you know we actually know how to cook a little bit. He doesn't want anybody showing him up and taking the shine off his barbecue. I,
1: I heard that. I heard that when he said that. Well, he definitely won't invite you and I then. Yes, exactly. Hey, the other thing I want to talk to you about the receiving core. You know, everybody's. We don't know how long Jerry Judy's going to be out. I'm in the camp that. I'm not so sure. Sh- I know he has the potential to be a great player, but it's always been potential. And I haven't been to training camp, so I can only go by what I've seen in the preseason. <clears throat> he gets open, but he doesn't catch the ball. So how long is Wilson trust him like that?
0: All right. Well, here's the other thing. Uh, Scott Hastings used to always say, do you, do you ever meet a guy that said, I used to have a bad back, right? It's the same thing with right. hamstrings. Like, In a season, you know, like, hamstrings don't, you know, tend to not like, oh, my hamstring's fixed. You know, maybe next year his hamstring will be fine. But I remember when he, like, he hurt his ankle uh, a couple years ago. It was like, oh, the entire season stunk. And it was like, well, his ankle was never quite right. Like, I I can just see it now. Oh, well, that hamstring, you know, he relies on on his explosiveness to get open. That's his strength. And the hammy was just never quite right. I mean, can you see it, Terry? Yeah, and I've never... Jerry Judy has yet to convert
1: me to be a believer that he can be an integral part of the offense on a regular basis, a great play now and then, but when you need to count on him, he just seems to not show up. Exactly. So while we got to wrap this up, I'm sure you're going to talk more about all of these wonderful topics. And now that you have my input, you'll have a more authoritative view. on it. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'll wrap up the show and you can talk sports, my friend. Thanks coach. You bet. This will wrap up this week's edition of Terry Wixer Up Outdoors. Thanks to Dante in the studio for running the board and keeping us on the air. Karen for putting this whole thing together so it looks like I know what I'm doing. And thanks to all of you for listening. We're usually on every Saturday from 9 to 11. Next Saturday, we're only on 9 to 10.30 because of an Air Force game, but we'll be on 9 to 10.30, so tune in and join us. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in sports with Dan Jacobs.
4: The will